you will take your Bible and find your place in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to just look at this idea of contentment that Paul's laying out here in verses 10 through 13. You know, in America, we use a phrase, uh, the good life. Uh, we Many times we'll talk about, even songs will be sung about the good life. I uh, jokingly mentioned country music last week, and uh, if you listen to country music at all, I know some of you are already smirking about what I supposedly said when I mentioned country music stuff last week, but uh, you just hear wrong, and, and I speak right, so that's just the way it is. Uh, but when you listen to country music, for that matter, probably any genre, uh, you're going to hear music, you're going to hear songs about this, this good life, this lifestyle that everybody is aspiring after. And so this begs the question, what is the good life? There's so many people who are striving after it. What is the good life? Well, it probably has as many different definitions as there are people who are striving for this type of lifestyle. And it all depends on the person. It depends on the circumstances. For instance, for the lady who, uh, who grew up poor and had very little, she's seeking to build the good life from wealth and, and from having much. But for the busy urban businessman, the good life for that man is a slower pace of living. It's someplace that's far from the city. It's a quiet and tranquil life without all the hustle and bustle. Perhaps the best way to summarize the good life is to define it as the belief that a, a change in, or a way to summarize the good life is to believe that a change of circumstances will bring contentment. If I could just get something new, if I could just change these circumstances, if I only had blank and then you fill in the blank, then surely that is the good life, right? If this situation changed, then I could be content. I wonder this morning, without a show of hands, just want you to ponder a couple questions, but how many of us are on the search for this good life? We're on a, a, on a search, a quest to figure out how to have a better life, to be more content, to, to be happy, to be filled with joy, and, and so we're pursuing anything and everything that we think will give us that sort of life. Do you wish the circumstances in your life would change? And, I bet all of us in here could look through and sift through our lives and, and point out some things that, yeah, we wish that they could change. But will it give us that good life? I mean, if you were to change some of those things, would you be content? Would you be happier? Would your life be filled with more peace and less turmoil? See, we're often tempted to think this way. If I just had a nicer car, man, life would be great. If I just had a bigger house... Man, life would be grand. Here's what I know about that. If you had a bigger house today, you'd be spending more money for it in today's market. Amen? If I had less stress, then my life would be great. If I had more time for single people if I, or a married couple who, who's longing for children, if I had a family, things would be wonderful. Here, here's another thing that families get together with or, or married couples. Sometimes they begin to wonder, man, if I didn't have the family, life would be better. Hope I'm not touching on any toes this morning. If I could just have a fresh start, if I could start over, if I had more money, if I could get that new job, get that promotion, if I had a better wardrobe. You say, well, what's the big deal about clothes? We're human beings. Don't think that we're above that. When life is stressful, if I could just have that glass of wine, things would be so much better. If I could get another degree, if I could go on vac vacation and just have some R&R, &R, life would be wonderful. What happens after vacation? You come right back to it. You're going to need that glass of wine again, right? 
That's the way we think. We begin to think that if we could change the, 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 the seats on the deck of the sinking ship, then surely things would be better for us. Well, King Solomon, who experienced just about all that this world has to offer, has some wise word for, words for us. Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wow. King Solomon, is that true that, that I can spend my life doing all of these things and, and at the very end of it look back and it's nothing more than a striving after the wind? Vanity. Well, before we kind of uh, cancel Solomon out and think that he is this guy that says you should not have any material things and, and just have this impression that he despised those, that's not what Solomon is saying. You continue to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and you get down to verse 24, and you see that there he's encouraging us to find enjoyment in those things, to see them as blessings from God in our lives. You see, what he's talking here about is perspective. The difference in all of this is perspective. The things in our lives should be viewed as gifts from God and not become gods themselves. And so Solomon says, I have lived all of this. I've experienced this. I've been on the highest highs and the lowest lows, and I've learned that they are inadequate in all ways. And the thing that satisfies comes back to your relationship with the God who created you. You see, when the things of this world and the circumstances surrounding our lives become what we are living for, the things that we're striving after, we set ourselves up for disappointment and destruction. How many times have you, in your mind, built this vacation that you've been planning for a year and you've spent all of this money and, and you've, you're taking family members, you're taking friends with, and, and you go off on this grand vacation and it's wonderful, but you come back thinking, I don't know, it's, it's good. I, it didn't give me the ump that I thought it was. Am I the only one that feels that at times, that when you put all this money and effort into something and it doesn't fully satisfy you? See, the reason for this is simply because we're created for better things. We're created for a better one. Came across a quote from Chuck Swindoll this week that I think really uh, kind of drives the nail home in this regard. He says, the good life exists only when we stop wanting a better one. The itch for things is a virus draining our soul of discontentment, or our soul of contentment, I should say. Like Solomon, the Apostle Paul did not reject material things either. Think about what Paul's life was about, what, what it consisted of. He had an incredible education. He, he had an incredible heritage. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he has this awesome opportunity to, to be a leader among his people. God calls him into Christian ministry, becomes a, 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 an apostle, becomes a church planner, becomes a great missionary. He's an incredible theologian. 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament he authored. He has this incredible resume. And no time does Paul ever tell his, the people in the church, the people who are looking up to him, he never tells them to not be grateful and, and to be blessed by the things of this world. In, in fact, he calls us to the opposite. It's much like Solomon. He never downgrades the good things in his life. Instead, we see him being grateful. We see him striving after new goals. He's always pressing on. He's always striving for more. He's always desiring to use what God's given him, but there's a level of contentedness in his life. 
You see, contentment is not complacency. Sometimes we think of contentment as, well, I just need to be satisfied with the status quo. I never need to strive for anything else. That's not what we're going to see in the scriptures here. Contentment it is, is not this idea that where I'm at in life is just all there is for me and I'm never to strive for more. No, it's not that at all. We're always to strive for more innovation. We're always to strive to strive for more creativity. We're always to strive to, to earn more money, to do more things, to be a better father, to be a better mother, to be a better friend. All of those things we should be pressing on in with contentment. How do you do that? The Lord Jesus becomes your contentment. That's where Paul was. See, contentment is not complacency. It's not a false peace based on ignorance. Contentment is not escape from the battle. It's rather abiding, an abiding pace and confidence in the midst of the battle. It's moving at the Lord's pace. So as we move to this final portion of the letter here in Philippians, Paul is sharing, again, another expression of joy. He says he greatly rejoices in the church's concern and provision. The second half of chapter four is where we're going to be today and next Sunday. This morning, we're going to look at this idea of contentment and, and what Paul has to say about it. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll talk and finish this letter and, and see what Paul says to the church and how we should be generous in how we live our lives and what we do with the things the Lord has given us. But let's talk about contentment this morning. Look at verse 10. Then I want to share just kind of the context of what's going on and then give you Three sets of three. Two sets of three. Sorry, I freaked y'all out. Like, we're going to be here to 1130. Two sets of three things, some principles and some actions. Verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul here is rejoicing over the concern the Philippians had for his life. We've been talking about this over the last several months as we've been working through this letter. If you remember, the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, one of their, one of their brethren, one of their leaders, this great man of God, this great encourager they sent to Rome. And with Epaphroditus, they gave a gift. And so Epaphroditus is coming to encourage, to admonish, to lift the spirits, to, to be a blessing to, to, uh, to Paul, but he's also bringing a gift to meet physical needs. Paul is in Rome. He's under prison. He's facing trial. They've learned of all of this. They knew about his living conditions. They've always been concerned, but until recently, according to what Paul's saying here, they've lacked the opportunity to meet some needs. They've lacked the opportunity to, uh, to, to bless him and to be an encouragement to him. So Paul's words of gratitude here, as we read them, should not be un- misunderstood as some sort of passive request for more aid. Many times, in, in maybe in church life or in a nonprofit, uh, we will passively send a letter like this, kind of flatter, showing flatter and talking about how their gift uh, has blessed them, encouraged them, which is good, but usually there comes with this underpin of, hey, I need more. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not using flattery. He's not making a passive request for, nor, for more. He's not saying, thank you for your gift. I've, I've uh, renamed the cell that I'm occupying here in Rome. It's called the, the, church, of Philipp- the church at Philippi, cell to the glory of God. It's none of that sort of stuff. 
He's just rejoicing and showing gratitude. But neither is he being silent about the gift. Sometimes we just will be silent about a gift because we don't want to puff someone up. That's not what Paul's doing. He's thanking and blessing them for the gift. In all of this, he's keeping the focus on the Lord. He's keeping the focus on what the Lord is doing in him and doing through the church. We discover in verse 11 that the Lord had used the circumstances in Paul's life to develop contentment. He says he had learned contentment through experience. In other words, his spiritual contentment was not something he received upon conversion. This is what it tells us. You and I, as followers of Jesus, grow in our level of contentedness. You don't just get all of that in in conversion. You, you, You pray, you understand you're a sinner, you confess that sin before the Lord, you come to him through faith, and all of a sudden you're the most content the person on the face of the earth. That doesn't happen. Right? Even in our own maturity as human beings, we learn this sort of thing. You ever met a baby that's content? That's the most selfish individual on the face of the earth. They think you revolve around them, and in many ways, we do. <laughs> that's right. We do. They're selfish. You, you learn contentedness. You learn that you're not the center of the universe as a human being. And so that's also true in our spiritual lives, in our walk with Jesus. We learn that he's the center of the universe, and we revolve around him. And so in our Christian life, in our development, we go through many difficult experiences of life in order to learn how to be content. It's a process. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Sometimes life is easier, sometimes it's harder. In all of that, God is teaching you contentment. The word content literally means contained. This is a term that was favored among the Stoic philosophers of, of Paul's day. It carried this idea of self-sufficiency. So if you know anything about the Stoic philosophers, you can see where they would love this term because it was all about self-sufficiency, all about yourself. They were not these overly emotional type of philosophers. They thought that the best thing to do in life was to just be controlled and sufficient yourself. Paul picks up and uses this term and baptizes it into the Christian doctrine, transforms the idea to describe not sufficiency in oneself, but look what he's talking about here, sufficiency in Christ. We're to be content, not because we have white-knuckled it, we're content because we understand Jesus is sufficient. When you think about the apostle's life, he had experienced all kinds of things. He'd experienced in his life just about everything the world had to throw at him. Just go with me for a moment here. Paul understood. He'd experienced and known abundance. He's writing to the church at Philippi, who was one of the first converts there in the city of Philippi. It was a woman by the name of Lydia, Acts chapter 16. Lydia was a woman who owned a business, and and her commodity was purple dye. It was a high-end type of business. Most scholars believe she would have been a very wealthy woman. So he knew what it was like to be at the home of this wealthy woman named Lydia, to be hosted by her, to enjoy all the things that come with that level of lifestyle. Surely also in the cities of Ephesus and Corinth, both very high metropolitan areas with a lot of wealth, Paul would have enjoyed wonderful dinner parties with wealthy Christian friends in those cities. But he had also known hardship. Paul talks a lot about the hardships that he faced. He had experienced hunger and thirst, tattered clothes, homelessness, and hard labor. Paul had known beatings and imprisonments, riots and sleepless nights. He had been shipwrecked and lost at sea. 
Paul's not complaining in any of this, in any of his writings for that matter. What Paul's doing is rejoicing because the Lord had been enough for him. Think about him kind of sloshing around in the waves of the Mediterranean Sea after being shipwrecked. Jesus was enough for him. He wasn't thinking, man, I've really overstepped my bounds. I've overthought my life uh, directives and, and, and point of reference, and I've done more than I should be doing. No, he's, he's rejoicing in what he's done. He's rejoicing over the fact that he appealed to Caesar because it's taking him to Rome. And he knows that regardless of the situation, Jesus is enough. All of these experiences had taught him the secret to contentment. That's what he says in verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know, Paul's generation was no different than the generation in which we live today. Contentment is uncommon. It's hard to find a person today who's absolutely content. Again, that's not because they've given up on life and like, I've reached the pinnacle, I can't go any further. That's not what he's talking about. You should always strive for more. You should always grow and develop as a person, develop as a leader, develop as a, as a human being, as a parent, as a child. We should all be growing in certain places. We're not talking about complacency here. We're talking about contentment. Contentment is so uncommon. It's like a rare jewel. Most people think it can be found in a set of circumstances or possessions. But this is also what people believed in Paul's day. It's what people believe in our day. But the apostle, on the other hand, had learned that more convenient circumstances or better stuff will not bring the Christian a deeper sense of satisfaction. Man, if we just had more bells and whistles, life would be better. Or put it in the context of the church. We're Americans. We think bigger is better, right? Man, if we just had more people coming, if we had just more musicians on the stage, if we could have different things up there and more technology, we're going to get better technology. We're, we're about to go on a major renovation of this floor, and things are going to be better from that standpoint. But it's not so we can have the biggest, bettest, greatest show. It's about so that we can just do things better. It's not about looking at things. It's how can we connect with him? Paul was content in all things. He learned this knowledge, and he expresses that in verse 13. The satisfaction comes from the Lord. You know, verse 13 is interesting. Look at it. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Most of you probably in this room have that verse memorized. You got John 3, 16 on one side of your brain, and you got Philippians 4, 13 on the others. Uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16, we all know that. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him through Christ who strengthens me. Unfortunately, this verse is one of the most misquoted, misappropriated words in all the Bible. See, Paul's not making some sort of categorical, comprehensive statement here. He's not saying, I can break these chains. Sitting in Rome, he's not saying, hey, look, I'm in chains now. I, I got Roman centurions tied to me, but I can break these things through Christ. I can overpower and body slam these guards because of Christ. I can run out of this cell with 4-4 speed because of Christ who gives me strength. That is not what Paul's saying here. And yet, if you pay attention to sports at all, if you play sports, and as a believer, you've probably known that athletes will oftentimes take this verse, write it on their shoes, write it on their arms, whatever, and it's this motivation for them to go out there and fulfill their dreams. Mad props to you. Go for it. They're well-intentioned, but I would say they're uninformed. 
I'm not questioning the motive behind it, because I probably did it as, as a high schooler. I remember uh, in high school when I was playing football, we went through this phase where, if you remember, there was a shoe, and I don't remember if it was Nike or what, but there was a slogan, no fear. And so I remember a bunch of us going to the mall, to the athletic store, buying these stickers, and we all put them on the back of our helmets that said, no fear. I'm out there on the field with no fear, Right? And so we probably took the same thing. I remember marking certain things on my shoes and when we played basketball. and We did all those things. Not questioning the motive, just questioning the exegesis behind it. How they interpret the scripture. See, there was once a time that I could dunk a basketball with two hands. Unfortunately, it's, I'm 25 years removed from high school. I've had both knee surgery and ankle surgery to repair uh, tendons that were ruptured. I would be lucky and extremely happy this morning. To put a fingertip on the bottom of the rim. That's been a long time since that happened. And so it doesn't matter how many times I quote Philippians 14, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm dribbling in with the basketball. I plant my foot. I'm going to fall way short every single time. Why? Because this is not some sort of magical verse that if I will quote it enough, all of a sudden I morph into 1988 Michael Jordan and I can take off from the free throw line and slam it home. Get 10 on the dunk contest grade. It's not what it's about. See, when we consider hermeneutics, fancy term for biblical interpretation, context is essential. We're always trying to talk about that around here. And the phrase, all things, here in verse 13, must be governed by the context of the passage. What's the context? He's talking about material possessions. He's talking about contentment and life and circumstances. Paul here is declaring that through Christ, he is able to be content in every situation, right? He's not saying God's going to change the situation. He's saying the Lord Jesus is enough right where I am. Contentment. Where are you at this morning? What's going on in your life? We've got families who have lost loved ones, deep loss in their life, we got families who are still struggling because job situation hasn't kind of rectified itself through all this COVID. Many, many hardships in the lives of families all across our community. But is the Lord enough? So what does contentment look like in our lives? Let me give you three principles of contentment. You know, I got like 15 minutes to do this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. <laughs> oh, wait, I just used that out of context. Three principles of contentment. Number one, contentment is grounded in satisfaction. It's grounded in satisfaction. When we're thinking about contentment, you need to understand that it's all about what satisfies you, who satisfies you. So one, to, one way to think about contentment is as a perfect condition of life in which no further aid or support is needed. In other words, there's no lacking. You are full. What's one of the great graces of God that he's given us? Food. Anybody like food? You bunch of liars, you should be up here repenting when we get done. Everybody likes food, right? I mean, what do you want to do on vacation? Yeah, we'd like to see the beach. We'd love to see the mountains. Where can we eat? You know, that's what we're thinking. What's the best restaurant around here? Where, where's the best burger? I want that thing to be this high. Nate and I love to go to the country market here. Why? Because you can get a $5 sandwich, and it's like this tall. You can eat on it for days. Love it. So one of the great graces of God is food. We all love food. Think about how you feel, though, when you're hangry, right? You're not just hungry, but you're hangry. 
You're a little angry because you're so hungry. When, when you're hungry, all of your senses are fixated on that hunger. Just go with me for a minute. Your eyes are tuned in to hear the sound informing you. It's time to eat. You're listening for the dinner bell. You're listening for the alarm to go off in your watch. Maybe you're, li- you're hearing and listening as the bacon is sizzling in the, the skillets. I mean, your ears are pay- playing a part in your hunger and your desire to fix that hunger pain. Your nose is intoxicated by the wonderful smell coming from the meal being prepared. Oh, there's nothing like the smell of good food. Your, your, your eyes enjoy the beauty of the food that's set before you. Your sense of touch relishes its texture as you delight in that amazing taste as you take a bite and then another bite. and another. It's all about the senses, and they are fixated on fixing your hunger issues. Anybody hungry yet? Let's just close up shop, go to lunch. See, when the food has been eaten, the meal is over. And for the time being, there's no more need for food. You're full. You've eaten full capacity. I mean, it's like Thanksgiving dinner. You've been looking forward to it all week. Some of you have been fasting all week, so you have more room, so you can eat more. And then you're just kind of sitting back and and, and just letting it all hang out, right? You're going to get a bigger shirt because you're full. You're content. When we think about and try to understand contentment, the first step is to think about it in the context of satisfaction. Contentment is grounded in satisfaction. Number two, satisfaction is found only in the Lord. You know, the thing about food, to kind of carry this image a little further, the thing about food is it doesn't last very long. Again, Thanksgiving meal, maybe you eat at 12 like uh, my family and Kara's family usually does, and so you have a big lunch. What do you do about 6 p.m.? I mean, you've eaten till you literally hurt, but at 6 p.m., you're like, hey, where's that turkey at? Where's that dressing? I'm going to have it cold now. I'm going to put it on a sandwich, and and I'm going to get that cold dressing. I'm going to eat it beside it and and all the other fixings. Of course, I'm going to have about three more pieces of pie. We eat because it doesn't last very long. you got to eat again. And the same is true of circumstances and material things. There's always changing going on in those areas of our lives. Think about this. Today you might have money, you might have a nice home, you might have friends, you could have a good job and enjoy incredible vacations, but tomorrow all of that could be gone. We're studying the book of Job in our small groups right now from adults and students. What do we see in Job's life? Man, it's wonderful until it's not. Gone in a day. Circumstances change. They need to be replenished. They need to be updated. You might not have any of those things and somehow... Still longing for more, longing to be wealthy or rich. You know, who plays the lottery? It's typically lower income people. It's people who are desiring to have something they've never had before. And and so what if they were to win the lottery and instantly have millions of dollars in the bank? Would that satisfy them? Well, history tells us it doesn't. Most people who win the lottery go broke. Their life is destroyed. Here's an interesting fact. If you were to go and and just look look at some research of athletes, professional athletes who make millions and millions of dollars a year, typically they come from low-income families, no-income type of situation. All of a sudden, they're thrust into millions of dollars. They spend four, five, six years earning big money in the pros, and then five years afterwards, they're absolutely broke. Why? Why? Because, number one, they don't know how to deal with money. And number two, it never satisfied them. So they kept spending and spending and spending, hoping, thinking that it would bring contentment. Circumstances and possessions can never define or ultimately satisfy anyone because none of us were created 
for those things. We are created for better things, a better one. Paul learned this reality through the ups and the downs of his life. He learned satisfaction and contentment that they are only found in Christ. That's what he's saying in verse 13. He's the only one who does not change. Here's the third principle. When the Lord is enough, you can be content in any circumstance. See, when the Lord is the resource of your life, you will be content regardless of the circumstances surrounding and swirling around your life. All of nature depends on hidden resources, right? Great trees that we have. I was walking down from uh, getting the mail yesterday down my driveway, which is a downward slope, and there's pine trees on one side, pine trees on the other side of the, uh, the yard, and I always look at them because I'm looking for which one's going to die next. And uh, it's just amazing to look up in 40, 50, 60-foot pine tree, and you're like, how does that thing stand? You're awful close to my house, and what's keeping you from falling into my home? It's the roots. It's the thing that's below the surface. The most important part of a tree is the part you can't see. It's the root system. And for us as believers, the most important part of our life is not the part that people can see. It's the part that only God can see. See, unless we draw on the deep resources of God by faith, we fail against the pressures of life. This morning, have you learned in your walk with the Lord that he's enough? Have you learned, have you lived long enough to know that, that being on the mountaintop and being in the valley is not a bad thing? Both have their issues, but it's all about where Jesus is. He'll be with you on the mountain. He needs to be with you on the mountain because if he's not with you on the mountain, here's what you begin to think. I'm, I'm good. I'm sufficient in myself. I don't need anybody to help me. He needs to be with us in the valley because in our despair, we may be thinking, there's no way I can go forward. I need someone to help me. And if I don't have Jesus, who do I have? And it can lead us to a place of such despair, we could even take our own lives or want that at least. We need the Lord to be there. He's always enough. We need to learn from Paul the blessing and the stability that comes from resting in God's goodness, his sovereignty, and, and find satisfaction solely in him. So how do we live a life of contentment? Let me give you three actions. These will go quickly. Number one, be thankful for those who worked to meet your needs. That's what we're seeing in Paul here. He's showing gratitude for those who worked to meet a need in his life. Paul recognized those who had the Lord had used to meet his need. He recognized their generosity and their love that they had shown. He thanked God for them. In Philippians 1.3, he begins the whole letter with that idea. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, he says. He also told them how grateful he was for their ministry and how they were a blessing to him. I mean, think about this, Christian. You should always be thankful for the blessings and the gifts that others have sown into your life. Never allow yourself to forget that. Never think that you got to where you are because you did it. No, the Lord did it, and he used his people to do it in you. We need to be grateful, thankful. Last week when we were at the Southern Baptist Convention, we always, you know, life is busy and crazy. Don't always have the opportunity to spend a lot of time on the phone or whatever with guys who've, and gals for that matter, who've been a blessing to us, Kara and I. But we always try to catch up with people at the convention. So we, uh, I saw my home pastor there. I got to spend a couple minutes before he had to go backstage. He, he's the president and CEO of our executive committee. He's a big leader in our denomination. Got to spend some time with Pastor Johnny Hunt, who will be here this fall. He's a mentor to me. He's Kara's pastor. Got to spend a couple minutes with him. Just always want to show gratitude for those and, and other people who've invested in us because we are grateful for that. 
We need to be grateful. Number two, be on the lookout for needs in others. You see, we, while we strive to remain grateful for those who saw a need in us, we also want to strive to see the needs that others have. I mean, we need to be on the lookout and, and search, not living with our eyes closed, not failing to see the needs around us, but seeing those, spotting those, recognizing those needs. And we can only do that when we get our eyes off of our own situation so that we can see what's happening in the lives of other people. Perspective is what we're talking about here. Perspective changes everything. Get your eyes, your eyes off of yourself. Get them on the Lord. And when you do that, here's what's going to happen. He redirects your view so that you can see what's happening in someone else. Number three, seek to meet the needs in others. See, it's one thing to see the need. It's quite another to meet the need. Too many times we may recognize the need but never take the step to meet it. But the Lord calls us to do both. In fact, I would say that you are disobedient to not just to only recognize the need but not take the step. You say, I don't know if I can meet that need. Figure out a way to bring some other along with you to meet that need. Raise the awareness of that need and strive for it. The Philippians here saw the needs in Paul's life and wanted to help. There for a season, this is what Paul's saying, there for a season they didn't have the opportunity. That's what he says in verse 10. They didn't have the opportunity, but they always had the desire. And when that opportunity arose, that they could step in and meet the need, that is exactly what they did. We need a desire within us both to see and to meet a need. But again, you'll never see the need in someone else's life, much less meet that need if your eyes are only fixed upon yourself in your own situation. So you've got to be satisfied with the Lord before he can use you to bring satisfaction into someone else's life. Seek to meet the needs in others. How wonderful would it be to live the good life? I don't really know what the good life is, but we're all chasing it. We've all got kind of our own picture, our own idea of what it could be, and usually it has something to do with what, something we don't have. You think about the church, and you say, how could we be so worldly? Well, there's a lot of Christians chasing after things that they don't have, thinking that they will satisfy them. Here's what we know from the Bible. If you were to catch the good life, it would not satisfy you. You would never be content with it. It would leave you wanting more, and the reason for that is because you were made, created for more. You were created by God and for God, and so only God can satisfy you. Only God can satisfy you. Only a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, can satisfy you. Bring contentment. Can you say this morning that you're content? Man, my life's a mess. My life is difficult. My life is hard. My life is great. My life is easy. It's never been better. It doesn't matter what side or what area in the spectrum you find yourself today. Can you say, I am content. The Lord is enough for me. The Lord's enough may not have as much money as I want. Who does, right? Nobody does. But the Lord's sufficient, and the Lord is enough, and I am content. Today, there's probably someone that needs to stop chasing after lesser things and come to the greater one. See, the greatest need in your life is to know God. You're chasing after everything this world has to offer, but you're empty. You're absolutely empty. You can even chase after religion and find nothing but a black hole. You need to stop 
the chase and come to the Lord? What, what would keep you, if that's you this morning, what would keep you from coming to the Lord? Just recognizing you're a sinner, recognizing you're separated from God, recognizing that no matter what you do in life, you're never going to find satisfaction. And you know that because you've never found satisfaction. You thought you had it by the tail a couple times, but it wiggled itself away and escaped and left you longing for more. This morning, you're where I was back in 1997. The greatest need in your life is to say yes to Jesus and no to the things of this world. What would prevent you from coming? Maybe you're a believer this morning and you're living, but you're not living a satisfied life. Jesus, you have, but you're not really finding satisfaction in him. Christians are chasing for lesser things, just like non-Christians. And it leaves you empty. And you wonder why. Well, I think about that. Why, why is my life such a mess? It's because you're living for lesser things. You're running on fumes because you've not learned to be satisfied in Jesus. You still think that joy and fulfillment can be found in those lesser things. For you, that imitation is simple. Come home. Here's what I'm praying for. You know, last week, I, just that passage on right thinking, it flows right into this. We need to change the way we think. It's not about living for things that are lesser, things that are unholy, things that are not good. It's about, I want to know Jesus, and I want my life to revolve around him. I want him at the center of it all. So for you, if you're a Christian and you're living for lesser things, man, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you. I'm encouraging you. I'm admonishing you. Let's get on our faces before the Lord and just say, Lord Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're a husband. You just bring your family. We are off the path that we should be on. And this morning, we're rededicating. This morning, we are reorienting our lives, our home around the Lord. We want to be content.